Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Live Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into these special topics, these questions that uh, we take up from one Thursday to the next. And as we do, what we do is respond to the question you send to me, right? We have been at this for quite some time now, off and on over the past, oh, five, six years. Now, what I'm going to do this evening is take a stab at about, well, three questions, I think, if we have enough time, maybe four. I have been getting a series of different questions, and sometimes if the question is personal, I'll offer a personal response to the individual, but in other cases, especially when I'm being asked to talk about it on air, I do take up uh, your question. Now, I, I, I say three in number because uh, I, I have three questions that I think we can tackle over the course of well, approximately our 25 to 30 minutes together. And again, I have a fourth on standby if we get there. If not, I'll take it up next week. All right, so let's jump right in to the first question. With all of the sin and hypocrisy in the Catholic Church today, I am done going to Mass. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> right? I love that question because it doesn't beat around the bush. With all of the sin and hypocrisy in the Catholic Church today, I am done going to Mass what do you have to say about that, right? Okay. Well, there are a number of things I would like to say about that, right? First, Jesus himself confronted the issue. Uh, what do I mean? What was one of the objections Jesus had to face from the Pharisees? But this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, right? It's a remarkable thing when you really think about it. Jesus is found among sinners, even hypocrites. He is not found in the perfect places of this imagined church. He's not simply found in the places or, or company considered desirable. No, my friends, he is found where he is. And where is he? Among sinners. Huh? I believe, arguably, one of the more prominent, if not the most prominent, images for the church is well, but Christ crucified between two thieves. Huh? He has come to save us all, Gentile, Jew, Greek alike, John tells us. Now, something else we have to remember is what Christ said when he came to establish the church with Peter as its head in Matthew 16, verses 13 and following. He didn't say, I will build a church, but my church. You see, my friends, in the 2,000-year history of the church, there have been many sinners, but the grace they received in the sacraments of the church is what turned them into saints, right? Does this not highlight the mission of the church? The church as a hospital for sinners, which means sinners will be found there, but so will the medicine of the sacraments, the wisdom of Scripture, the healing and encouragement that comes with strong Christian friendships and so on and so forth. Be assured, my friends, the Catholic Church is well aware of its sin. That is why we have the sacrament of confession in every parish. Now, 
as for hypocrisy, (laughs) I think we would do well to wonder if any human being on this planet is utterly free from this problem of hypocrisy, this ubiquitous problem of hypocrisy. Surely, anyone who points the finger at the hypocrisy might find a little hypocrisy when they look in the mirror. And I bring this to light because this is what Jesus wants us to do in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when he calls us to take the plank out of our own eye, huh? the boulder as it translates in the Greek. So in the end, we must always remember that the fundamental purpose of the church is to bear witness to the truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is the Mass, the Mass that lies at the heart of this truth. What did Jesus say in the upper room? This is the blood of the New Testament. Do this in remembrance of me. And maybe as the question has been posed, because of the sin and the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church, I've stopped going to Mass, we should dwell on the significance of this phrase and be mindful of what the Mass is. Uh, The Greek word employed here for New Testament, we'll start with the word new, is kaine, which denotes more than something recent in time, but a quality of freshness, and just not a quality of freshness, but a quality of permanence. Maybe something we might think of when we hear the phrase new commandment. So our Lord's words have the quality of being new, even thousands of years uh, later. 2,000 years have passed by in the light of, of Christ's own words, just not in the upper room, but also in John chapter 6, we are reminded of the permanent freshness of his words. Because, my friends, Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is using ritual words to institute and inaugurate a new Passover, a new covenant. Consider when Moses extended the covenant on Mount Sinai, he ritually sprinkled the blood of the animal sacrifice saying what in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8? Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. Does not Jesus echo those words, but maybe more than echo those words, transform those words? Essentially saying, there is a new covenant that I testify to on my Father's behalf in my own blood as the Lamb of God. I think that to be quite powerful. If we were to tease the significance of this phrase out a little further, placing an emphasis, of course, on the centrality of the Mass. You know, it's interesting. In some translations, you will get the word testament for covenant, right? He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. I suppose here one might ask the question, why testament and not covenant for the old and new dispensations? Well, Really, my friends, the distinction appears only in Western translations, which have been influenced by, of course, the old Latin Vulgate. Right? The Vulgate was the translation of the Bible, the Hebrew, and the Greek into the Latin in 431 by St. Jerome. So seeking an equivalent to the Hebrew Bereth and, and Greek diatheke, which are the respective words that translate covenant, Latin speakers found nothing exact and settled on the Latin testamentum a word that, of course, is tied to covenant bequests. So what we find in the first Christian thinkers are references to the New Testament as it relates to what but Christ's sacrifice, right? 
St. Irenaeus of uh, Lyon and St. Clement of Alexandria, again, two of the great first Christian thinkers, said it plainly that the Eucharist is the New Testament because this is what Jesus was doing in the upper room, instituting the New Testament. So what the first Christians knew as the New Testament, and whatever denomination you belong to, this is your history too, the New Testament was not a book, but the Eucharist. For again, this is what Christ was saying in the upper room. What I am instituting is the New Testament. Do this in remembrance of me. Essentially, the original use of the phrase New Testament wasn't a text, but a sacrament. This is the good news. This is the transforming message. This is what the church bears witness to because this is what Jesus told them to do. Again, the Mass lies at the heart of the Christian revelation. So the question I pose to you, to the one who posed me the question, if you feel the need to leave the church, why would you allow another person's weakness, even if it is a priest or bishop, to ultimately, uh, ultimately determine your fate? If I am a teacher, do I let the failures of other teachers determine how good of a teacher I am? No. I embrace the vocation of being the best possible teacher that God is calling me to be. So why would we as Christians and as Catholics allow someone else to determine how good of a Christian we are? We will all have a final conversation with Jesus. That conversation with Jesus will take up a very important question. How much did you love me? And a part of that conversation is going to entail the importance of focusing on him and him alone, not allowing everyone else's faults to determine ultimately what you do or don't do. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. All right. That being said, to the next question, our second question. Since the pulpit is being used less and less to inform Catholics what the church teaches, how are Catholics to be educated in the faith? I I think this to be a fascinating question. Um, (laughs) One that I think makes an assumption both uh, true and false. And the assumption is that all pulpits have gone silent on teaching the faith. I think, yes, in some areas this is true, in other areas this is not. I do believe this question to be timely, though. Why? Well, let me explain. I was just reading a survey about religious education, and I actually wrote some numbers down here, and I want to actually go through these numbers. These numbers are specific to religious education, and there are four, uh, rather five categories that this survey took up, this CARA survey, so a very extensive survey. And the first was this, the number of primary school-aged children in Paris religious education. Listen to these numbers from 1970 to 2018. In 1970, they were, there were 4.2 million children. In 1980, 3.4 million. In 1985, 3.1 million. Jumped to 2010, a very slight but still decline, 3 million. 2015, 2.6. 2018, there was an all-time low of 2.3 million primary school-age children in Paris religious education. You see what happened there? There was a decline. You think this is exclusive to primary school-age children? No. How about Catholic elementary schools? 
1970, 9,366. 75, 8,414. 1980, 8,022. 1985, 7,764. And there was a continual steady decline all the way to 2018, where there is now only 5,115 Catholic elementary schools. You can imagine that the students in those Catholic elementary schools also saw a very steady decline, as well as secondary school-age teens and parish religious education, as well as Catholic secondary schools. I'm not going to go through all of these numbers, but in each case, what you see is a steady decline. So yes, it is true that many Catholics today are poorly formed in the faith, and certainly we see this, uh, the consequence of that, if you will, in those numbers I was just speaking to. Now, specific to your question about the pulpit, while some pulpits are going silent on catechesis, I might suggest to you something else, arguably the greater danger, which is the growing silence to evangelize the faith from the pulpit. Because if we talk about catechesis before evangelization, really we are putting the cart before the horse, because ultimately it's evangelization that precedes catechesis right? What do I mean? Well, to evangelize is is to bring someone with the assistance of the Holy Spirit into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the deeper entrustment of that personal relationship that we call catechesis. One is not going to entrust themselves to Jesus Christ if they first haven't had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, right? Because that encounter leads to the trust, leads to the willingness and the surrender of wanting to know more about the one who they're falling in love with, which, of course, in this case is Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, catechesis is widely important, but the aforementioned numbers are what they are because there is an absence of just not being informed in the faith, but again, evangelization. We haven't just gone silent on catechesis, but the call to be great, heroic Christians and Catholics— We have gone silent in the call to become a saint, to become a holy one of God. All that said, I do think it is problematic to place exclusive focus on the pulpit. Why? Because there are many ways that the Catholic faith must be and should be preached and taught. Yes, the pulpit is very important. But so are other means to evangelize and catechize. This is especially the case since most Catholic masses have sermons that aren't going to be any longer than 10 minutes, right? Thus, other things must be added beyond the sermon in order to teach the faith. And certainly, if we were to highlight one, that would be what but the family. At the heart of handing on the faith is the family. And thus, catechesis must focus on renewing what but the family and equipping the family to better teach the faith. And here I might suggest there are numerous, numerous uh, wonderful resources for Catholics to learn their faith. Certainly the website Informed is a great site because that site is a compilation of many publications, blogs, websites, various forms of Catholic media and YouTube and others, movies, lecture series, all of it. You can find on just not informed.org, but uh, elsewhere. Just go online. Do an index search on good Catholic Orthodox teaching, 
And there are videos, podcasts, blogs everywhere. By the grace of God go I, right? This is a podcast, and what are we about here on Seeds of Truth? But evangelizing and catechizing the faith. We are doing everything we can. I am doing everything I can to, to meet you where you're at. Okay? So hence, yes, beyond the pulpit, many other things are both needed and offered. Indeed, I think we are very blessed today with many resources that help us teach the faith. So yeah, the, the pulpit is important, and the pulpit does need to go where it needs to go, which I argue is first a good evangelization. And we have in our local pastors right now in, in Chico, California, good preachers, good evangelists, good catechists too. They're evangelizing, but they are also informing us in our faith. All right, next question. And this is an interesting question, a question I actually get asked quite a bit, um, and one that I thought, yeah, we should talk about on air. The question was posed as this. I was reading Matthew 24. It would seem Jesus' predictions on Jerusalem's ruins were fulfilled. However, what of his description of alterations in the sun and alterations in the moon and alterations in the stars? Were these fulfilled, and does this have any implications? for the end times. There's a lot there. huh? Um, let me first say this, that uh, biblical scholars, on one hand, yes, have differing opinions on what elements of the Mount Olivet Discourse relate to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and what might ultimately refer to as the end of the world, as it's posed, to, as it's posed in the question. Some of the details quite clearly relate to the events of 70 AD, such as wars, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and so on. Even some other details such as earthquakes and and famines occurred uh, around that time. Other details may be references to the end of the world. Uh, The sun and moon darkened signs in the heavens and the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Or, Or they may also have occurred in 70 AD, and I tend to agree with what occurred in 70 AD. Why? Well, If you're to go to the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, he gives very detailed descriptions of what took place there in 70 AD, where he describes clouds of smoke as Jerusalem burned, which dimmed the sun and eclipsed the moon and the stars. He also describes strange wonders in the heavens, possibly a comet and strange lights, strange lights near and above the temple at night. I suppose a balanced approach would be acknowledging that all the signs had a historical reference rooted in 70 AD, but also symbolically point to the end of the world, of which Jerusalem, of course, is a sign. Which, in the end, my friends, brings us to what? Well, what have we talked about so often here on Seeds of Truth, but a proper interpretation of sacred scripture, how you approach sacred scripture interpreting them in their literal sense and spiritual sense. And by literal sense, I don't necessarily mean literally, an eye for an eye, no, but the literal sense within the context of the literary genre. huh? What was the intention of the author? Who was the author writing to? What's the significance of his style of writing? Right, The Mount Olivet Discourse is uh, an apocalyptic genre of writing. Now, the spiritual sense, of course, is the moral application. So once we have this working hermeneutic or, 
or working interpretive key, right, to better understand the Bible, those two keys of the literal sense and spiritual sense, I think we have a more balanced approach to better understand sacred scripture. Um, And as for Christ coming on the clouds, well, that is prophetic language describing judgment on ancient Israel for lack of faith. But it is also clear that Jesus will come in judgment on this world as well in the end end times. Okay? All right. How are we doing on time? You want to know what? I think I will go ahead and take a stab at this fourth question, uh, a very important question, and so I don't want to just rush through it, but I do think we have time. The question is this, and Dr. Holcraft, I follow the news, and I do see, I've come to realize <laughs> that there is a lot of fake news. How are we to read this news, watch this news in light of our salvation? Does it have any implications upon our salvation? Right, so that's a big question, and, and I think there is a lot there. I think this is twofold. First and foremost, you bring up salvation. And so the moment you bring up salvation, you know where I'm going to go if you're a faithful listener. I'm going to, I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, which suggests we best work out our salvation when we abide in that great gift of the Holy Spirit of uh, the fear of God, a healthy fear of God, where we go before God with that awe-like reverence before God. Huh? Is this not the beginning of all wisdom? Is this not what the sacred text tells us, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? And if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then yeah, wisdom is very important to our salvation as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Huh? And so it takes wisdom to be able to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, especially when it comes to what is happening today in 2019 as it relates to the drive-by media. Brothers and sisters, we have all been given the capacity to reason, right? We have reason and faith to come to know. And wisdom aids our reason. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is a taste and inclination for the whole. As St. Thomas Aquinas describes it, wisdom is the vision from the hilltop. Why is wisdom the vision from the hilltop? Well, the wisdom is the vision from the hilltop because it has a broader access to be able to see what needs to be seen. Right from the hilltop, as we have talked about before, we can begin to see the trees beyond the trees, the water beyond the water, the mountain beyond the mountain, the whatever you see beyond whatever you see, right? It gives us access to the whole. Suddenly, on the hilltop, can you see how all things are interconnected? To receive the spiritual gift of wisdom is to receive insight, a more sensitive taste, if you will, for the whole. If I'm a mechanic, All I have to do is hear a sound the engine is making and tell you if something's wrong, what needs to be replaced, right? With the spiritual gift of wisdom, we have a taste, an inclination for the whole. The deeper we go in God, the more we will see uh, the false narrative that is being played out before us. 
And yeah, as it relates to our salvation, don't get caught up in it. On one hand, it is very important to be aware of what is going on in the world. But at this point, as I have told many, many people, as important as that is, what is quintessential but to be in a living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Then and only then are you going to access that great gift of the Holy Spirit to then be able to see and come to better understand what is going on today. And in some cases, my friends, as much as we need to have that conversation, and and Lord knows I've had it many times here on air and elsewhere, (laughs) for sure, more recently I've come to discover that maybe that's a conversation that shouldn't be had right now, given the person that I'm having the conversation with. What do I mean? Well, if I've had this conversation about Trump and all of this anti-Trump sentiment with one specific person 20 times over, and they're still carrying on with the same thing. Do you think the 21st time is going to make a difference? Something that I have tried recently, and it has helped me kind of push the conversation along, guide the conversation along, is put the focus back on Jesus. Yes, there's many, many ways to handle that conversation to bring about truth, But again, you've asked me specifically, how do you deal with the relationship between fake news and salvation? Well, put the focus on salvation. Put the focus on our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because often is the case, if we have become so intoxicated with our anti-Trump sentiment, are we going to see truth for what it is? It takes time. And it won't happen until we have rerouted the conversation back to Jesus. Because by doing that, you're rerouting the conversation back to the fullness of truth. And if, and if truth is what we're after, then let us go to the source and allow the Holy Spirit to open those doors that, yes, need to be opened. But remember how they're opened. Not by just what you say, but by how you call upon the Holy Spirit to steer and to guide. Amen? Amen. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was at the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.